Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and joining me is what I'm, I'm just going to start calling her a frequent guest now, because this may be the third or fourth time that she has joined us. Nina Jankowitz is back with us today. She is our disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, and don't let the title fool you. She is going to give us information, not disinformation. And in fact, she has a book that has just been released, How to Lose the Information War. Nina, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So you've you've added to our summer reading list by putting uh, this book out this month. And how timely, of course, you know, we've been talking about disinformation for the last couple of years, but, you know, it's been Russia that we've talked about for the last couple of years, but now we've got coronavirus happening, conspiracy theories abound, and social media just seems to be where it all takes place. So tell us why, you know, with our audience of mostly policymakers and congressional staff here, why they need to pick up this book as part of their August uh, reading. Well, basically, I wrote this book for them, so there should be an element of guilt involved there. <laughs> oh, of course. I mean, now that you've said that, of course, uh, that'll make them do that. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm and I'm not really joking. So I wrote the book. I had the idea for the book when I was um, a Fulbright Public Policy Fellow in Ukraine. Uh, I was there as the saga of the 2016 election unfolded and revelations about. Russian interference came to light. And, you know, from the front lines of the information war there in Kyiv, I was thinking, why is anyone surprised, right? Uh, this is something that's been going on, not only, of course, in the Soviet era, but even in the modern information era, uh, since at least 2007 in Estonia. And if you go around the region to Georgia, to Czech Republic, Poland, uh, Estonia, all of these places, uh, you, you see a pattern of, of how Russia has tried and, and tested these tactics, and you've seen governments try to address them, some more successfully than others. And so as we, you know, all sat and licked our wounds, um, thinking, how could we let this happen to us? I thought it would be useful to kind of lay out some of the responses that have already been tried and tested. Um, so I only hope people listen <laughs> this time around. Uh, but, but hopefully, you know, what I like to lay out here in, in terms of what these nations can teach us, in addition to like, of course, this isn't new. The first thing is that Russia uh, is using the divisions in our societies against us. The, the subtitle of the book is Russia Fake News and the Future of Conflict. I actually had a little bit of a tiff with my publisher about that because I didn't want to use the term fake news because it's a misnomer. What Russia does is actually take our emotional responses, take our you know grievances in society and weaponize those against us to turn us against one another. And that's a big misconception about how disinformation works. And that's the first thing that the book brings out in all of these case studies across Eastern Europe. The second thing, is that homegrown actors are really involved in all of these disinformation campaigns, usually unwittingly, but still it helps Russia to have an air of plausible deniability that it can use in order uh, to separate itself from its disinformation campaigns. So here in the United States, um, I wrote about in the beginning of the book uh, an anti-Trump flash mob. So again, another misconception. A lot of people think that disinformation uh, just targets conservative voters. No, it targets both sides of the political spectrum equally because it wants us 
you know, again, pitted against each other. This anti-Trump flash mob happened after the election in front of the White House on July 4th, 2017. And Russia used a pre-existing protest group, gave them some advertising money. They attracted hundreds of people and they pre- pre- performed some um, songs from Les Miserables, the musical, uh, that were parodies from, from the musical. And they went out there and protest Trump. Uh, they had no idea that they were being supported by, by the Russians. And that sort of thing happens all over the world, including in Eastern Europe. That's where Russia tried and, and tested these tactics. And then the third thing that's really important is, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, We can't fight disinformation if we're practicing it ourselves. Uh, There is no line between foreign disinformation and domestic disinformation. In fact, by using disinformation domestically, we open ourselves up to more manipulation, whether it's from China or Russia or Iran or North Korea or Venezuela. Um, And all of these nations show that, you know, that's not something that we can embrace. Disinformation is a threat to democracy. It is not a partisan threat. Um, and that's something that really comes through in all these case studies and something I hope part, uh, our, our friends on Capitol Hill take home. And I know that it's important across the aisle. I want to pick up and just kind of pull the strand a little bit on the, the homegrown part because I recently saw a story about a man who has been trolling for a couple of years now, and I think it was the Washington Post that found him and, and wrote an article calling him out. But he had basically generated an entire fake protest in Gettysburg over July 4th weekend, and there's all of these things. Apparently, he's been doing this for a couple of years. Now, this guy, he is an American and has a political agenda. You know, he's trolling the right and, and creating things. This guy probably doesn't see himself as a disinformation actor, right? He probably sees himself as a political actor. But what I'm sensing from you is that an outside force, you know, the Russians, they can take something like that that's homegrown and maybe, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, fellow traveling in disinformation. Uh, so yeah. am, I, am I correct in kind of pulling those two things together? You're absolutely right. And one of the things that I've been looking at a lot recently is um, the use of private spaces on the internet to kind of identify people and movements just like this and weaponize them against us. Basically, when when we have actors like the guy you just mentioned or uh, other domestic political actors who are using disinformation, we've done the Russians' job for them. All they really have to do, they don't even have to create content. They can amplify the content that's already existing, which is what they did with that Les Mis protest group that I I talked about before. Um, So we really need, this is where the regulatory question comes in, right? Because right now, nobody is really incentivized to not do this stuff. Uh, In fact, it's a disincentive if you're not doing it because it puts you on unequal footing with the other campaigns who are also doing it. Um, so we really need some regulation about what is and is not allowed, and at least in terms of political campaigning online. When it comes to things outside of the campaign world, it's going to be more difficult to, to crack down. But the fact that we don't even have these campaign regulations on the books yet, four years after all of these revelations came to light, um, it really makes us a lot more vulnerable, not only to the foreign interference, but to any bad actor in the domestic sphere as well. Anybody who wants to do this for political reasons, but also monetary, which we've been seeing a lot during the coronavirus crisis. I guess the campaign side of it's one thing. Right. That's and kind of a, a niche area, because when you really think about this, 
it goes beyond something that's just dealing with campaigns, but really just in, in kind of how we interact with each other on social media. Is this something that can be regulated? I have hope that it can be regulated. So it's it's less about, you know, giving the, or requiring the social media platforms to do fact checks, for instance, and more about regulating transparency. So I am really in favor of for instance, uh, regulation that would require the social media platforms to undergo independent audits of their algorithms to ensure that certain people aren't being uh, silenced and other people aren't being, you know, unduly promoted. Um, I'm in favor of more transparency about advertising and how it works. Right now, there are no regulations about that. The, the social media platforms are just kind of self-regulating and sometimes adhering to their own principles and practices, but not very equitably across the board. Um, and we need more transparency about ownership and management of things like pages and groups, because often these groups and pages will be, you know, um, all of, of one network, right, controlled by one person. Um, and these narratives are being strategically kind of pumped out across the internet. And people don't really have any understanding of how they're one node in a greater web. Um, all of this is, is really, really important. And that transparency certainly would equip users with the tools that they need to understand more and uh, like how to navigate this information environment. Um, even if, you know, some people aren't going to utilize that information, at least it's there. And then we don't have those arbiters of truth. We know Facebook doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth. I frankly don't want the government to have that big red button either. Um, but it, if we're equipping users with that information, you know, making it easier for journalists and researchers to, to use it and package it to people who, who need to, who, you know, who need a summary, who can't do the, the work themselves. Um, all of that's really, really important. I think it is, you know, it is enforceable ultimately. Um, and then along with all of that, we need to equip people with the skills that they need to actually navigate that environment, which is something I've talked about here before as well. And that seems to me, I'm reminded of Shakespeare here, where the fault is not in our stars, it is within us. So there's the question of can it be regulated, right? And and you you respond with a lot of interesting transparency ideas, and that's that's interesting. But how do you stop Joe Bagadonuts American or Joanna Bagadonuts American who is looking at Facebook and really sees what their good friend or grandmother or somebody posted, and they trust that person? and have no reason to, to go and check on the transparency statistics, right? How do we overcome this sort of psychological fault that we have to believe whatever, this confirmation bias? Yeah, that's exactly the sort of, um, you know, psychological inability that's being weaponized through things like groups and in those private and trusted spaces as well. It's a great point. Um, I think what needs to happen there, and this gets to kind of a broader strategic communications realm um, is identifying trusted messengers, third-party messengers that are outside of government, outside of the, you know, uh, social media platforms in order to deliver those messages. So there have been some studies done in the public health arena. Of course, this is very apropos now with coronavirus, but about hand-washing in, in places uh, like villages in Africa. And they find that it's not about, it's not like a contagion effect. It's not like one person adopts hand-washing and then it spreads around the community. What really makes people change their behavior 
behavior is when a trusted voice is coming to them and saying, uh, you know, this is really important that we all do this. Here, I'm washing my hands. It's not going to have a curse upon your household or whatever. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing that we need with disinformation as well. We've seen a few efforts with celebrities and things like that. But I also think this is, you know, going to come down to some of our elected officials adopting uh, language that is very clear about the threat that disinformation poses, not only to national security, which for, you know, most Americans is a very amorphous concept if they even recognize it as all, at all, but to public safety and public health as well right now, especially during these times. We need that clear, consistent communication that, you know, the, this is important, that it's not a, a politicized thing, that it's a threat to, uh, to our safety and to our democracy, ultimately. So where does Congress fit in a dwindling respect for experts and authority in that sort of model, right? It almost seems like we're, we're breaking down into smaller and smaller nodes of trust groups, where somebody on social media, they, they may not want to hear what a politician says, but they do want to hear what their pastor says or what, you know, this community leader or their family member says. And that starts to seem overwhelming when it comes to how do you regulate that when you're, when you're looking at just the millions of people who are on these platforms, but then how do you even know where to begin to, in order to, or does everything just have to break down and restart? I hope we don't have to fully break down. I mean, I think within um, individual, if we're talking about congressional communications and, and offices and how they communicate, this is me with my strategic communications advisor hat on again, this type of stuff I used to do in Ukraine. When, when Ukraine was uh, trying to do some public health uh, and like health sector reforms, in, in order to get people to trust them rather than it coming from politicians and the health minister, uh, they got priests to talk about it in their sermons. So this is where, you know, your your congressional representative can uh, look at the leaders in his or her community and identify voices, trusted voices who can who can carry that message. And of course, you know, they're not going to script and give them talking points, but somebody who's who's uh, who can, you know, be on that path with you. I think we need to identify those and think a little bit more creatively uh, because you're right. The trusted mechanisms or the things that used to be trusted voices, trusted vectors no longer are. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is uh, pumping up the information environment with, with good information. So not just that transparency stuff, but I, I really think investing in public media and independent journalism is an important thing. Obviously, the government can only do so much, but I think uh, it's incumbent on the U.S. to really step up our funding for things like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting at this point in time. We only spend $3 per person per year, and it's a very sad statistic when you compare it with the, the rest of the developing world, especially because NPR and PBS are giving information to people who are in news deserts. Often they don't have any local news except for their local NPR and PBS station. And I think that's in this situation, if we're not equipping people with information, something is going to fill that vacuum. And usually it's not, you know, trustworthy information that's going to make better informed voters. Um, so that's something I think is, is really important. But there's also, you know, 
education, we need to pump money into our, our Department of Education to fund media literacy programs. Uh, we can do this also through libraries and civil society organizations who can target the voting age population because if you look at the, the public opinion polling, kids are actually a lot better at recognizing disinformation than, than adults are. Um, and libraries are, are really trusted vectors still on both sides of the aisle. People still trust their librarians um, and they're looking for their raison d'etre in, in this new kind of digital age. So I would love to see them equipped with more funding uh, to pursue, again, nonpartisan uh, civics, media, and digital literacy education. I think it's critical. And if you look at the case studies in my book, Estonia, Ukraine, Czech Republic, they're all investing in things like this. And countries like Sweden and Finland, who have been more resilient to this sort of thing for decades, have invested in it for generations as well. I had a colleague that used to say that we have non-predatory neighbors to our north and south and fish to our east and west. And so we have been somewhat isolated from these sorts of challenges. But Estonia, Sweden, Finland, they're all right in this neighborhood. Uh, we took a trip to Sweden and uh, about a year ago asking them about this, this challenge. And I was surprised at just how nonchalant they were. They were just like, yep, I mean, this is a problem. Sometimes we have attacks, but we have systems in place to deal with it. And we're just, it was almost like, yeah, you know, it's just part of doing business in the region and they just deal with it. And and over here, it's like, everybody's shocked, shocked that there's gambling here, right? <laughs> this amazed that, you know, we're talking about seeing news stories about uh, that, there's evidence that Russia is trying to hack the vaccine programs and breathless coverage of that. Well, why is anybody surprised? They tried to hack the Manhattan Project. Why wouldn't they do that here? Uh, so uh, it's interesting just the difference in our perception versus the Europeans. Yeah, and that's something I'm trying to bring to bear with with my book and with all the work that I've done that really looks at these nations on the front lines. And, you know, even they're not able to get it right. <laughs> Um, and we've not learned from their experience or our own experience. I mean, you bring up the Manhattan Project or any of the hacking that Russia has done in the past four years. It hasn't stopped because we're not deterring them, really. Um, of course, they're going to do this sort of thing. And we need to start learning from those mistakes and looking to the people who have been dealing with it for, for decades for, you know, that sort of advice and at least best practices or worst practices in some case. Lessons, lessons observed, my colleagues over there like to say, because we haven't necessarily learned them fully yet. So one thing that fascinates me about your chosen topic area is that this does seem to be in our nature. And yet uh, your job is to figure out what is to be done. And it really kind of begs the question, if this is already going to happen anyway, what is the reason for regulation? What's the point for it? Yeah, so especially with the Russian vaccine hacking, it seems like something that was totally inevitable, right? And none of our deterrence so far has worked, so why should we keep doing it? We have to keep doing it because rules matter. The fact that we have international norms matter. Maybe they don't work against Russia, but right now we're not going to sacrifice very much if we impose those norms on Russia because the U.S.-Russia relationship is not at its you know highest uh, level in the past decade or so. Uh, in fact, it's at its lowest, I would say. And uh, 
setting those norms sets an example for other countries uh, who other, you know, malign actors who might be thinking of doing this, but also it, it sets a standard for the United States, right? It, it says what we stand for, which is rules and norms and rule of law, uh, freedom and transparency, all of these things. Um, and right now we've kind of abandoned that stuff. If we don't continue imposing these costs, if we don't continue to adhere to our values, then it fuels the, the whataboutism that Russia has been uh, campaigning on for decades. Yeah, if we have these in place, then, you know, it may not affect Russia. Russia will just do what it's going to do. And we have to have something in place to kind of box that. But it also may prevent, you know, the next hack from North Korea, you know, or something, something like that. Yeah, exactly. If we're imposing costs on Russia, it could prevent the next Sony from happening, which was, you know, except until this recent Twitter hack, which happened last week, which was not uh, foreign actors. It was just some guy in his mom's basement, literally. Uh, <laughs> it, it might prevent the next Sony. It might prevent other actors from doing it. It also might prevent, you know, eventually when there's another administration in the Kremlin, it might prevent them from engaging in that behavior and saying these costs aren't worth it to, you know, the the prosperity of the russian federation how to lose the information war find it at your local bookseller uh or online and uh we we see so many news stories about russia but this also goes beyond russia uh you know this also touches on on china north korea likes to get involved with this stuff uh, so there's so much more than just one dimension to this it's it's a really a deep topic if you go far enough into it thank you for coming back on we appreciate always having you as a guest and look forward to reading the book thanks so much aaron it's always a pleasure